announcements to. First announcements, just in case you didn't know, it's Mother's Day. So call your mama, okay? Because if, uh, if it weren't for mothers, you wouldn't be here, both literally and figuratively. Number two, uh, if you are in junior high, um, go ahead and head on out now that you have greeted and shown that you're a part of this church. And Caleb will be there uh, to have a time more specifically geared towards junior hires. There does not seem to be a mass exodus, but that is fine. Um, did you bring weaponry with you, Henry? Yeah, uh, yeah, of course, yeah. <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> Why, yes, I do. Uh, that, was, that was two. Uh, <clears throat> three, oh, three was about uh, fellowship, which if you missed it on the way in, uh, I don't know what to tell you. It was, it was there. <laughs> so make sure afterwards, even if you don't have food to create forced fellowship, which is the entire point. You know that's why we do that, right? It's not like we absolutely love making snacks for you all. It's that church is not a spectator sport. So like if you are here today to like check a box, I went to church, or like you're here because, I don't know, if you feel like that's what you're supposed to do on a Sunday morning, the, the church is not a place. Church is a people. You are the church. You who are in Christ are the church. And that requires you to interact with one another. So we try to just facilitate that the best that we possibly can by giving you an excuse every once in a while to stand around and eat snacks. So uh, if, you, if the snacks aren't there, which they will not be, that means that snacklessly, you still need to take your job on and hang out with one another, talk to one another, pray with one another, listen to one another. You can't do the one another's without one another. So do some good one anothering. Finally, um, in our, one of the things that I think, um, when we all slip into eternity, I imagine that a significant portion of time a lot of time, you know, because at that point we have an infinite quantity of time ahead of us. A significant portion of time will be spent kind of undoing the wrong ways that we have developed thinking about things. Um, I'm not talking necessarily about sinful ways of thinking. I'm just talking about wrong ways of thinking things. If you don't think that you think wrongly about something right now, you're wrong. That's enough. <laughs> But one of the things that we'll notice is that a lot of the people that are going to be applauded and people will start gathering around will be people whose names you've never heard. There'll be people, there'll be, you know, little old grandmas that, that prayed dozens and dozens of people into the kingdom of God and you've never heard their name. You know, they're not going to be people that had the opportunity to stand in front of crowds like I do. They're going to be people that you've probably never heard of before. And it will take a little bit of undoing for our thinking to be like, oh, 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 those, those are the heroes. Those are the rock stars in the kingdom of God. One of the biggest things that you will not hear them say during that time is that they are the heroes and rock stars. You won't, you won't hear them say that during that process. So I get to say that because 
part of my job in the kingdom of God, what my role is, I'm nothing special when compared to you. I just have a specific responsibility just like you all do. My responsibility is that my job is to be a herald. My job is to tell you what the truth is so that hopefully you can base your life on it now and begin to live that kingdom life now. And so I get to, to point to a few individuals that, that probably some people will be gathered around when we get to that moment, and you get the opportunity to gather around first. Last night, I got uh, the opportunity to take my family to sit and have dinner with the missions committee and some other folks with uh, two visiting missionaries, Danny and Annalise. Why don't you wave at this point? Danny and Annalise are right there. Wave a little bit longer so that you can see. I've been a part of this church almost 10 years, and I hadn't had the opportunity to meet them yet, and I was the poorer for it. Um, When you get a chance to meet with somebody or two somebodies who have devoted their life to saying, I will go. I asked them, why did you go to the Republic of Guinea? And they said, well, we needed to go where there weren't missionaries. Oh, <laughs> uh, okay. It wasn't because, it was because the work needed to get done and they were willing to do it. And they've, they're now pushing, actually, I think they've exceeded four decades of being there in various capacities, both medical and now taking care of children. Our church gets the honor of helping to support them. And they... Uh, graciously devoted a a weekend to be able to come and be with us to eat with the missions committee. And then they wanted to be with us this morning, not only to worship, but also to have an opportunity so that you can get to know them. And I would encourage you, listen to their stories. If you want your faith strengthened, listen to their stories. My faith was strengthened, strengthened last night, listening to their stories. Because one of the things that you start to realize when you listen to stories of people, especially that have gone to other corners of the world, is that the kingdom of God has all kinds of different ways in which it is fighting with the kingdom of darkness. And they can tell you some powerful things, one of which resulted in the blindness of one of them. My friends, these are people who you want to listen to. I would encourage you, make them feel welcome by just going and letting them strengthen your faith. After service today, they'll be here. They're here for a a nice visual cue. Um, One of them's the only blind person in the room, okay? She's got the blind glasses and the blind cane and easy to find that way. And I'm gonna retell this joke as much as I probably shouldn't. When she came in this morning, she said to me, it's good to see you again. And I went, what? She said, well, I've seen you in my mind. And I said, I hope that I am way more attractive in your mind than I am in real life. And she said, probably a cross between Robert Redford and Paul Newman. And I said, that's exactly what I look like. (laughs) Please go have your your faith strengthened and appreciate them. The rest of you, um, and them included, Uh, We're going to continue our Ephesians series this morning, so if you didn't bring a Bible or want to borrow one of ours, stick your hand up, and Bible-passing-out friends will stick a Bible in that hand. The rest of you, open up that Bible to Ephesians chapter 1, where I get to continue our series in Ephesians 1. For those of you, again, I said this a couple of weeks ago when I got to teach it, For those of you, again, who like coming to church so that somebody will make you feel bad about yourself, I'm sorry, I don't have anything for you this morning. 
Because Ephesians chapter 1 is a long section of Paul worshiping God because the Father has provided us how many of the spiritual blessings, for those of you that have been here? Yeah, all. All of them. Not some of them, not most of them, all of the spiritual blessings. Blessings that we've already talked about, like being chosen, being adopted, being made holy, being made blameless, being redeemed, knowing what God's plan is. And all of these things come to us by way of being in Christ. That's what we're going to be talking about this morning as we continue in Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to invite you to uh, wait. I'm going to invite you to wait. That's what I'm going to invite you to do. Before we actually jump to the text this morning, I, I want to take a couple of minutes to say this. If you closely read the various English versions of the section that we're working with today, Ephesians 1, 11 through 14, you're going to notice some subtle but clear differences. Now, I don't want to spend a ton of time on these differences, but I also don't want you to start wondering, is my Bible trustworthy? The answer? Yes. Yes, it is. The Bible is without error. Our church holds to a theological position that's referred to as inerrancy. The Bible is without error. But when we say that it is inerrant, what we're saying is that it is inerrant in the original manuscripts. Here are some challenges that immediately get posed. We don't have any of the original manuscripts. Now, I've talked to you before in the past, if you've been here long enough, that the science of textual criticism is the goal of trying to figure out what did the original manuscripts say. But then even after that, they've got to then translate those original manuscripts from three dead languages. Ancient Hebrew, Koine Greek, and Aramaic for a portion of the Old Testament. And they've got to translate them into a version of a language that you can actually read it. So there's a lot of challenges that are faced before you, before you even get to the point of being able to read the text. Here's the good news. Like I said, I'm not going to spend a ton of time on it, but I want to give you these five points quickly that are not the main point. The manuscript evidence for Scripture is exponentially stronger than anything else that exists from, a, from antiquity. Far and away. Number two. The text experts whose job it is to figure out what the original manuscripts said agree on over 98% of the text as a whole. Three, the academic panel of linguists who have then translated what is on the pages in front of you agree on the vast majority of the text. Number four, even in places where there is some linguistic disagreement, none of them are of theological significance. They do not affect the main message of the gospel. And lastly, through it all, and most importantly, and we're going to make reference to this as we talk about Ephesians 1 today, Jesus told his followers that the Holy Spirit would guide those to truth who will trust him and follow him. Is the Bible in front of you trustworthy? Yes. Yes, it is. And there's going to be some variation in the text, and we'll talk a bit why, but it is trustworthy. So now, I want to invite you to read with me our section, and I want to invite you to stand 
using your body to remind your mind why it is or that it is incredibly special what we're doing with this text. We're going to read Ephesians chapter 1, just 11 through 14. I'm going to read from the English Standard Version here. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Father, may it not be lost on us that whatever ends up happening in our minds and hearts during this time, that the point of this text, the point for us, is to be praising you in your glory. Holy Spirit, enable my words. Make them not mine. Make them your words to the hearts of your people, that we might live lives that are fully worthy of bearing your name. We give you this time. Amen. You can be seated. So like I said, up until verse 10, Paul has been worshiping, talking about the spiritual blessings of God, and he continues as he gets into verse 11. Verse 11, the first couple of words are in him or in whom, and then we get to our first kind of weird section. Our first, when I say weird section, I just mean weird word. The next word in the text is used literally only one time in the New Testament. Think about it. If you're translating from a dead language and you want to try to understand the range of meaning that a word has, you want to point a comparison. Well, how else are these other people using it in these other literature during the time frame? That would make sense, right? The problem is if the word's only used one time, you don't get a point of comparison. So it becomes difficult for the translators to say, well, how do we translate this? Now, if you have New American Standard, English Standard Version, King James, New King James, it probably says something to the effect of, in him we obtained an inheritance, something like that, right? If you have one of those versions, just kind of nod at me so I kind of know who's got what version as I'm looking around. Okay. If you've got um, NIV, it probably has something like you were chosen or were chosen. Anybody, anybody still using it? Okay, yeah, definitely. Some NIVers like it, like it. One of the things that I found to be really interesting is that um, in a lot, of conservative, uh, a lot of conservative churches, the living translation or the new living translation doesn't get a lot of love from the front. But interestingly speaking, I actually feel like the footnote... That translate. Does anybody, I just want to see, have a New Living Translation with them? Yes, at least one hand. Hallelujah. Bless that hand. Right? The footnote of the word that, that they try to translate there says something to the fact that we, 
became the inheritance. Not we obtained an inheritance. We became the inheritance. Because the word that's actually used there, if you directly translate it, says something, or basically what it means is that which is received when you win, when you're casting lots. Casting lots, you might remember, is what they did at the foot of the cross for Jesus' clothing. That's how they determined who got the clothes. They cast lots. When the 11 were looking for a replacement for Judas and they asked for the Holy Spirit to inform them, who should we pick? We narrowed it down to these two guys. Do you remember what they did to determine God's will? They cast lots. They gambled. Yeah, makes sense, right? They rolled some dice. They flipped a coin. Here's the thing. At this time, it was perfectly acceptable when trying to determine God's will to use games of chance in order to do it. Now that, because we went through that whole like super conservative stage, like we, they don't want to translate the idea of like they gambled, rolled dice, or flipped a coin in order to try to, that God did that for us. But that's the word that Paul actually used. What Paul then, what we're looking at this type of thing, trying to understand it, and um, just a, a little bit of an aside, if you're not into the like super nerdy academic stuff, just like turn off your ears for like 90 seconds. I'll be right back with you. But the, the form of, there is a form of the word or a root word that means inheritance, kleronomia. And there's another verb that actually is used for receiving an inheritance and Paul doesn't use it here. So if you're interested in trying to understand this whole idea of, of why, the, why the translators would translate it in a way that doesn't seem to necessarily be the word, I, I will gladly dive down the rabbit hole with you afterwards. Um, I, I, uh, I dove down that rabbit hole with Caleb this week. This is Caleb's office. That's what I'm pointing here. I didn't know if you knew that. But I went into his office and he graciously let me dive down the rabbit hole with him, like explaining all the things. And I looked at a watch and it took like, 35 to 40 minutes. Okay, that's longer than the message I intend to give you this morning. So I'm not going to completely dive down into the hole. I'm just going to say this for you right now. And those of you that turned your ears off, turn it back on. Okay. The idea of us being heirs with Christ, Paul writes about that in Romans 8. Definitely in scripture. The idea of us receiving an inheritance, Paul actually writes about that in Ephesians chapter 5 in the same letter. So this idea of us receiving an inheritance, it's certainly biblical. It's certainly common to Paul. It's just not what I think Paul's actually writing in verse 11. There's no theological contrast. Like I said, they don't disagree on the theology of the meanings. But what Paul is writing here in verse 11 is that in Christ, we became his prized possession. We were risked for through the precious blood of Christ and we became what he won when he took the actions that he did to the praise of his glory. Jesse spent an extensive amount of time last week talking to you about how the blood of Christ redeems you, the, the, the steps that were taken for God to take a hold of you as his prized possession. We became that in Christ. Paul then goes on in verse 11 and says that all of this happened according to a predetermination. And actually, the next portion 
of verse 11, he lays out three different prior purposing Pauline words. I say it that way because we didn't put up the stage precisely so that I could say all the P's I want and not have to worry about spitting on anybody because I can't spit that far. We'll get you guys splash shields though if I keep going with it. But there are there are three different prior purposing languages that Paul uses in verse 11 talking about how God obtained us. First, that he predetermined or predestined or pre-horizoned. I shared about this word with you when I got to teach chapter 5, that we were predestined or predetermined or pre-horizoned for adoption. Paul uses that word again. Then, he says, according to his prior laying out, prothesin, saying that God purposefully laid out everything beforehand. I used an analogy to try to describe this in first service. It didn't go over well, so obviously I'm going to do it again. But when a rock climber is preparing to go up a big wall, they lay out everything. They don't put it in a backpack and just walk up to the wall and say, hey, let's figure out how things are going to work. They lay out everything, making sure they have all the right cams, make sure they've got the dynamic rope and they've got the haul rope and they've got the right stoppers. And I know that you don't know what I'm talking about, but I love rock climbing. So I had to talk about it. <laughs> but the point is that God specifically laid out everything ahead of time to look at the plan and be like, yep, yep, we got things. We got everything that we need. This is going to work. And he did it according, in verse 11, according to the prior plan of his will. Fain bulain, the counsel of his will. This word means a resolved plan that was created by prior decision. But it didn't come through some group effort. It came as a result of God's will, which if you'll remember from verse 8, God's will was expressed in all complete wisdom and insight. I got the honor last weekend to teach the, the junior hires the passage that you were taught from the front, talking about wisdom and insight. I loved making the distinction for them to teach them that there's a difference between the wise and the smart, right? Because smart people, those of you who in, your, in this room have earned your gray hair, you know what I'm talking about. You can cram all kinds of knowledge in your brain, but if you don't know how to use it, you're probably more dangerous than helpful, right? Instead, what you want is somebody who's got the street smarts to be able to use all that knowledge. That's wisdom. And the scripture tells us in verse 8 that God has all the wisdom and all the book smarts, combining it together so that when he lays out his plan according to his counseled will, he's doing it with total wisdom and total intelligence. Then we interestingly get to verse 12. With all that prior purposing language in verse 11, we get to verse 12. That he did this unto the being, us, there's that construction again if you remember it from a couple of weeks ago. He did this unto the praise of his glory for those who first hoped in Christ. God shows us that even with all of this planned out prior to the laying down of the cosmos, that we have a role to play in this process. 
we are the, the word here is pro, proeleptica, I'm sorry, I, proeltikatas. I see if I say it like a dummy, then you won't be intimidated by it, which is good. We are those who first hoped. That's what that word means. We are those who placed our first hopes in Christ to receive the spiritual blessings. Now, like I've already pointed out to you, if you are mildly philosophic in nature, you sense a bit of attention. If you paid a little bit of attention in your philosophy class, which I know as a philosophy major, none of you did. It was probably your least favorite class because it was just taught so poorly, and I'm sorry, on behalf of the philosophical community. But there is a tension that is immediately present here. I told you, prior purposing language that was in verse 11, and then we get to the fact that we somehow have a role that we specifically have to play. You see, Scripture is full of references that God divinely preordained what would occur. But at the same time, Scripture teaches us that we have a role to play in the process such that we have certain responsibilities. Now, for those of you that want to argue it out, find me later. Because what I want to do is teach the passage the way that Paul teaches the passage. Look again at first, at Ephesians 1, 11 through 12. Look at it. I'm not going to read it again. God preordains. God presets the conditions. God works everything according to his plan. But we must place our hope in him. Paul does not Seek to resolve the tension here. So neither will I. Verse 13. <laughs> Thank you for that laugh. <laughs> Verse 13. Instead, he just lays it on the table and says, oh yeah, we were talking about spiritual blessings. In him, in Christ, also you, having heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed or placed your faith, stop. Those who are in Christ start with logical content. Someone must communicate the truth in a way that you can hear it. We, have, we are those who have heard the word of truth, according to verse 13. I don't know how you heard the word of truth, but one of the things that I really enjoy being a part of the kingdom of God is hearing the varied ways that people hear about the word of truth. I've heard stories of people who literally like take that like weird tiny Gideon Bible that they give you for free sometimes that you're probably using to like balance out your table at home. It's literally, it's like written in 1611 King James. Nobody speaks that language anymore. Sitting down on a beach, reading that and going, Jesus died for me. I should give my life for him. And going and living a dynamic life in the kingdom of God. I've heard of stories of people in religiously landlocked areas, full-blown Muslim communities, where no one is talking about Christ because it would result in your death. And Jesus literally appearing to people in some way, shape, or form and saying, I am Jesus. I am the one whom you are seeking. Follow me. This is happening. It's happening for real in the world, possibly even right now. People hearing the word of truth, 
You know how I heard it? A ventriloquist dummy. Seriously. I was in a Motel 6 watching TBN. Yes, that's right. TBN. At about 5.30 in the morning, staying with my parents in a Motel 6. And a guy with a cowboy ventriloquist dummy told me the content of the gospel and invited me to give my life to Jesus. And even as a very young boy, I said, that makes a lot of sense. I think I'm going to do that. And I did. And I know that it was real because the first thing that I did is I went over to my parents who were asleep in that like taco bed that's on the other side of the room. You know the one I'm talking about. I know you all don't stay in Motel 6, but I used to. And, and I went over there and I woke him up and I was like, hey, 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 I just accepted Jesus and I'm going to follow him. And my parents were like, what? <laughs> that's how I heard the word of truth. Somewhere along the lines, if you are in Christ, you also heard the word of truth. So a side point, friends, you got to tell people. I don't know if you've thought about the reason why you're still alive, but it's not to make money. It's not because you're pretty and God just likes having the eye candy walk around. I mean, a couple of you are pretty, don't get me wrong, but if that's not the reason why you're around. Can I be honest with you? Last night, after I was listening to Danny and Annalise tell me stories of how God has been working in their midst in Africa, I'm like, God, why don't, why don't I get to see that? Like, that's, that's not fair. You know what God laid on my heart as I prayed those prayers is that, Brad, I, I don't, I don't need you to be in West Africa right now. I need you to be here in Truckee. This is where I've put you. This is where I've placed you. You are a missionary here. And it could be at some point that might change. But my friends, if you are still alive, quick check. <laughs> Kathy, check Brian real quick. <laughs> if you're still alive and you're here, there's still missionary work to do. And you get to do it. People cannot be placed in Christ unless they are told the content. And you can be a part of someone else saying, I heard the word of truth, the gospel of my salvation. And it was because so-and-so was willing to tell me that I placed my faith in Jesus. Now, after that happened, after we place our faith in Christ, Paul tells us in verse 13 that something incredibly spiritually special happened to us. That you were sealed with or by means of this, the Holy Spirit of promise, or a direct literal translation would be the Spirit of promise, the Holy One. Esphragasthete, that's what happened to you when you were placed in Christ. What it means is that you were marked with a signet ring. Now, one of my British friends came to me after the first service, and he's like, hey, I know that you like to give the signet ring analogy as like a royal thing, but like everybody had a signet ring for a while. I was like, okay, 
Doug, but I wasn't talking to Doug, but I was talking to Doug. Okay, thank you. But I can't help but think when I think of sealed with a signet ring of every medieval movie I've ever seen in my entire life, right? Where they melt the wax, they drip the wax, and then the king takes the ring and punches it into the wax. Doug also told me not to twist my hand because that would mess up the seal, right? But the seal goes into the wax. And it was done for possibly a variety of reasons, but at minimum, at least these three reasons. And when I tell you these reasons, what I want you to hear is that this was the reason for which I, if I'm in Christ, was sealed. It was to prove that what was sealed or marked originated from the dignitary, from the king, from the source. This proves that this one came from me. It also proved that the message was unaltered. When it was folded up and sealed, it was proven that there was no other source that went in and messed about with the message, that this was the message that I wanted sealed. Finally, it was used to designate an item as belonging to the dignitary, belonging to the king. When you were sealed by means of the Holy Spirit, he put his mark on you saying, this one is mine. This one bears my mark. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit according to verse 13. I like that that Paul writes it in that order, the spirit of promise, the Holy One. Paul writes it in that order to remind everyone that's hearing the story that Jesus had promised the Holy Spirit. We don't have time this morning to completely get into the full-blown theology of the Holy Spirit in as much as I would really like to. But what I need to at least teach you for now is that all believers, all those who are in Christ, were marked with the Holy Spirit. So when you hear the psalm that you're probably familiar with, David prays, God, take not your Holy Spirit from me. You know what? You don't ever have to pray that prayer. Because if you are in Christ, the Holy Spirit was placed within you. That is a very different thing than what was happening through all the Old Testament period. The Holy Spirit would make appearances, would fall upon people, would occasionally enter people for specific reasons to accomplish specific tasks, and then the person would no longer be filled with the Spirit. For those of you who are in Christ, you were marked permanently and forever with the presence of the Holy Spirit being placed within you. I know this is forever because look at verse 14. Verse 14 says, This Holy Spirit, who is the down payment, is the way to translate that idea, the down payment of the inheritance. This word in verse 14, the down payment, Arabon, what this word means is, I mean, think about it. It's not, that, it's not a confusing concept even to this point. When you want to buy something that is more expensive than you can actually pay for up front, you put a little bit of money down, you put it down, and that marks that thing as taken. 
that's mine. Now there's more process still to go. You're going to have to make some more payments. But that one that I put the, the down payment on, that one belongs to me. The Holy Spirit was given to us as that down payment. It is God's down payment for you. Which is why I believe that the best translation of the next couple of words would be this, that the Holy Spirit is the down payment of us or our being the inheritance. We are God's inheritance. And this is done towards redeeming his acquisition, towards collecting what belongs to him to the praise of his glory. We, my friends, who are in Christ, are God's inheritance. And he places his mark on us, the Holy Spirit, that we are verified as his. We are his acquisition, that which he is taking possession of. We are a people for his own possession, like Peter describes in his letter, 1 Peter 2.9. You are a people of God's own possession. Paul writes elsewhere, saying, you are not your own. You were bought with, a, bought with a price. I made the same mistake the last time. Christ bought you. That's why I'm combining. Price in Christ. Price in Christ. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. We are his possession. Now, Paul is making this point in 11 through 14, not necessarily just to give you a bunch of feel-good stuff, though I think you ought to feel good about it. But that's not, he's actually making a larger point that he's making all the way through chapters 1, 2, and 3. Talking about how God is combining. And eventually by the time, you know, five, six years from now, when we get to chapter 3, you will know what this larger point is. You giggle, but it's true. <laughs> but I mean, what's the rush? If Jesus isn't going to come back, I, I, let's just talk about the text until he gets here. That's my thought. But Paul's making a bigger point. And in as much as I want to try to make the bigger point, the only thing that we get to talk about today is just those verses. Now, I'm going to invite the musicians to come back so that we can prepare to respond, but one of the things that I was reading this, this week on, in a book that wasn't even for preparation of this message was just talking about the nature of teaching. And that good teachers... They don't just teach in such a way for the, the purposes of trying to fill your heads with knowledge. Like, that's, that's pointless. I mean, my friends, if you gathered this morning so that I can give you more trivia to win at, like, Bible trivia time, we all got better things to do. Me and you. I, I don't need you to be here because I need a paycheck. I don't have tons of skills, but I know how to do a few other things. I can make some money. The reason why I'm so passionate about this time is not to fill your heads with knowledge, but to show you the truth because your life becomes based as this truth, with your, this truth being your foundation. And it changes the way that you live your life, not just on Sunday mornings, not just to make your wife or your mom happy on Mother's Day, but this is the way that we live our lives on Tuesdays and Thursdays and Friday afternoons and Friday nights. That's the point of talking about the text. So for now, I don't have just like one point to share with you. I basically just, uh, here, here's the best I can do. If, if you kind of like phased out thinking about Mother's Day brunch after this, and you're like, whoa, I haven't been paying attention the last 28 minutes. 
That's cool. I love you. I'm glad you're here. Let me review for you what I've just said. I'm just going to do it in six points, six three-word points. Pick the one that you like, take them all, whatever. Number one, trust your Bible. Read it, know it, think about it. As a side note, one of the things that God has laid on my heart that I want to start doing somewhat sporadically, just it won't be like an every week thing, but I realize that for some of you, when I say read your Bible, you're at the stage of your Christian journey where you're like, I don't really know how. Like when I pick it up and I read it like a normal book where like I start at the beginning and then I try to like read it to the end, it, I, don't, I, don't, I don't understand. Cool. I'm so happy that you're willing to admit that or I admitted it for you. The church's job, it's our job to teach you how to do it. We want to try to teach you how to do it. So one of the things that I wanted that you just listen for it at some point, but my hope is to start doing like kind of a Christian living 101 thing where we just kind of gather together and we talk about these basic things. Um, first one will probably be like how to have a quiet time, how to read your Bible, how, how to read your Bible. Read your Bible. Read your Bible. Point one. Point two. Enjoy being loved. God takes joy in you. He did much to collect you. You are his prized possession. You are dearly loved. Even while he's working you through the process of cleaning you up, he even likes you. Yeah, you laugh because you know the difference. <laughs> he doesn't just love you. He, he likes you. Enjoy it. You are his prized possession. Three, hope in Christ. There is no hope in your money. There is certainly no hope in politics. There's no hope in your skills. There's no hope in your strength. Even if I did look like Robert Redford and Paul Newman combined, there would still be no hope in my appearance. There's no hope in your health. There's no hope in your talents. Christ is your first and only hope. Hope in Christ. Four, share the gospel. You heard it because someone else shared it with you. Pass it on. Pass it on. You still got lots of chances. You're still breathing. Pass it on. Five, trust the spirit. He is God in you, marking you as belonging to him. I know that that might be a little confusing at this point. You don't exactly even know what I mean. That's cool. We'll get you there. We will help you in this process. Trust the Spirit. Finally, look at the last words of Paul in verse 14. That God did all of these things so that we might be the praise of his glory. Praise his glory. God has given us all these spiritual blessings that we might praise his glory. That is the only fitting response for those of us who are in Christ. The more we understand of these blessings, the more we must turn to praise. In our songs, in our words, in the things that we do with our money, in the ways that we spend our time, in the conversations that we have, praise his glory. Father, it is the only thing that fits in response that we praise you. 
because of your wisdom, because of your insight, because of your love, because you have marked us as belonging to you even when we didn't deserve it. We praise you and we give you our lives. Amen. Would you stand with me?